Job 16, <clears throat> Job chapter 16, and this evening it's about Job's miserable comforters. Chapter 16 is Job's response to Eliphaz's second round of talks. This is the second time that Eliphaz speaks to Job. And it wasn't as long as Job's response to his first talk with Eliphaz. Job's later responses towards the end of the book, except for the last one to his three friends, these additional speeches are all shorter than his first three responses at the beginning of the book. You kind of get the feeling in his shorter responses that he's frustrated in answering his three judgmental friends because they didn't listen and they don't respond at all to his reasoning. They just kept on condemning him for being a wicked sinner and who's being punished by God for his sin. So Job's thinking is this, why should I waste my time and my breath trying to explain to them? So Job starts his response to his second talk with Eliphaz with a lot of ridicule. It's now become a habit for Job and his three friends to start their speeches by attacking what each other says. And Job won because God thought that his speeches were better than any of his friends, as we'll see at the end of the book. So the ridicule here by Job is mostly an attack on Eliphaz's advice, but it also attacks the other two friends' advice as well. Let's begin now with chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. And it says, Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. He says, man, I've heard all of this before, you guys. You guys are just, you guys are miserable comforters. You're not, you're basically not good at what you're trying to do. What Job's three friends had said to Job wasn't anything new. Job had heard it all before. And they gave the same old tired expressions and sayings of that day about suffering and what causes it. These were common sayings. They were common proverbs, but what aggravated Job so much was that his three friends tried to make these self-righteous old sayings convict Job, make him feel convicted that he had done some evil. They would use, they, they used these common sayings and proverbs uh, to condemn Job as being a wicked sinner, and he's suffering many problems because of his great sins, and Job totally disagrees with their conclusion. Job's situation is very confusing to him. It's very troubling to him. But you see, he knows his heart is okay with God. He knows his heart is upright. He's never said that he's perfect. He never said that he had never sinned. But he does say, hey, I am not guilty of committing some great sin, which has made my suffering worse. And he's right. We already know by reading the first part of the book of Job, that it was his righteousness that brought on these attacks and that it was Satan who afflicted him so severely. But you see, Job doesn't know any of this. He doesn't know about this, the, the, the real reason why he's suffering. So he's very troubled and he's very confused and understandably so. So he looks to his friends to, to kind of shed some light on why he's going through all of this. To shed some light on, on this confusing problem in his life. But they just keep singing the same old song and they're not helping him one bit job's friends didn't offer him any comfort at all they were so busy trying to prove that he was guilty that they didn't have time to comfort him they didn't show themselves to be very good friends and now these three guys were very cruel to job and the things that they said to him 
Job was suffering a lot because of the loss of his children, his wealth, his health, which must have put him in a bad mental state. But his friends didn't comfort him at all. All they did was accuse him or, or cause him more suffering. I mean, they cut him to pieces with their words and they, they, they wounded his heart. I mean, Job's troubles were bad enough without the additional hurt from his three friends. So Job was right when he called them here miserable comforters. Verse 3. Shall words of wind have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? Basically, he says, are you ever going to stop blowing hot air? He says, what's making you keep talking? And Job is referring to Eliphaz and the other two friends' speeches. He says, you're just spouting off nothing but hot air, just blowing wind. Because your words are empty, your words are without thoughts, they're lightweight, they're not important. Job thought that their, their advice was worthless. Nothing was helpful. And he called their speech just a bunch of hot air, which, you know, he had said that once before in his talk with his three friends. And as mentioned before, Eliphaz had opened his second speech by accusing Job of being full of hot air. But Job was right about Eliphaz's speech and the speech of the other two friends. What they said had no worth. It was empty. It was a lot of hot air. Words that said or meant nothing. Words that definitely didn't help him to understand what was going on in his life. Their speeches had nothing worthwhile in them. Their words had no help in them. They were no comfort to Job. In verse 3, Job is begging his friends to stop talking. He says, what keeps you speaking? You know what keeps you flapping your lips? He thought for sure that they would do what he asked if he hadn't provoked them. But he admits that he couldn't see how he provoked them to cause them to keep on talking. Job wants to know what he said or did that has provoked them to be so cruelly judgmental when they talk to him. What's making them keep talking when they should be quiet? Now, you could ask a lot of people, why do you say anything? Why do you speak? Because when they open their mouth, they don't have anything helpful to say. But, but people that, that just have to say something, people with a loose tongue, they don't need very much encouragement to say anything. Even silence, even when people are silent, is enough to cause them to open their mouth boldly and just pour out their empty words. Proverbs 14.34 says, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge appealing, but the mouth of a fool belches out foolishness. Proverbs 15.4 says, A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness is in it, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Do your words bring life to other people? Do they comfort? Do they help? Do they heal? Or do they hinder, scar, and wound? Verses 4 through 5. He goes on to say, I also could speak like you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. Job says, you know, I could say the same things that you guys are saying if you were in my position. 
I could spout off criticism and I could shake my head at you. But you see, if it was me, I'd encourage you. And I would try to take away your grief. And Job gives his three friends some good advice here about what their advice should be like. Job says, you know, if I was in your place, what I would do, what I would have to say would be a whole lot different than what you're telling me. He would try to say things that would lessen their suffering. Now, what Job says here, it reminds us of the fact that it is a lot easier, isn't it, to criticize somebody than comfort them. It doesn't take much thought to criticize somebody. It just seems to come out easily and automatically. Anybody can shake their head at a person that's suffering and lecture them for messing up. But it takes real wisdom and sympathy to say things that help and comfort when they're in trouble. It would be easy for Job to just spit out criticism after criticism against them if his friends were experiencing the troubles he is. Again, it doesn't take a lot of skill to criticize and condemn somebody who's suffering. But Job says, you know, if it was me, I would do the opposite. He would do the harder thing, but the more helpful thing of comforting his friends. He said again in verse 5, I would strengthen you with my mouth. Galatians 6, 1, Paul said, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. In other words, Paul would say, you know, if, if you know somebody that's having difficulty or they're, they're, they're been overtaken by a sin or whatever difficulty they're having, he says, you know, restore that person, but do it in a spirit of gentleness. Now, have sympathy and compassion. It doesn't mean that you're condoning whatever happened if it was sin, but, you know, you want to, the word is restore. Bring them back to that place where they were okay in their position with God. Verse 6, he says, Though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? He says, you know, in, instead, he, suffer, uh, he says, I suffer if I defend myself. And I suffer no less if I refuse to speak. No matter what I do, he says, I end up suffering. Job's trouble had brought him a lot of heartache. So he speaks next about his sorrow. And Job's sorrow is nonstop. It doesn't matter what he does. His sorrow doesn't go away. If he talks about his sorrow, it's still with him. If he keeps quiet, his sorrow is still with him. This shows us just how great his sorrow and suffering really is. Job's, Job's troubles weren't some lightweight experience. His troubles were great and they were extreme. Because Satan had given Job as much trouble as God allowed him to. Job had lost his possessions, his children, his health, and lastly, his wife's support. So these weren't happy days for Job. And then on top of all that, his three friends caused him even more pain by ridiculing and criticizing him and by saying the reason that such great calamity has come upon your life, Job, is because you are a wicked person. And their sins, your sins are not being properly punished. So rather than trying to cheer him up, they only added to his misery and his sufferings. Job was hurting big time. 
His sorrows were heavy, and they didn't let up. From this point on, Job mentions several things in the following verses that have caused his sorrow. Let's look at verse 7. It says, But now he, speaking of God, but now he has worn me out. You, God, have made desolate all my company. So the first thing Job says that, that has caused him so much problem is weariness. His troubles wore him out, and troubles will wear out a person. They're emotionally and physically draining. Now, if you experience a problem for a short amount of time, you know, we can usually endure that. We can usually go through it. But when a pain or a problem is ongoing and it, and it continues over a long period of time, it wears you out. It wears out the body and it wears out the mind. And it brings a lot of sorrow and grief in times of suffering. The second thing that caused Job a lot of problem is God's will. There in verse 7, notice the word he. But now he has worn me out. So he suggests, Job is suggesting that his problems and sorrows that followed are because of God's will. Because Job is not submitting to the will of God. And you know what? When you don't submit to the difficulties in your life, they're, they're, they're worse on you. They're harder on you. Job is not submitting to the will of God and honoring the will of God and saying, okay, Lord, if this is what you will for my life, that's fine. I accept. But it's a complaint about the will of God. Job is blaming God as being the main course for all of his sorrows that he's going through. And in this section, Job names God 12 times as being the main cause of his problems and his sorrows. When it was really Satan who caused Job's problems and sorrows. But again, Satan loves to have men blame God for the evil that Satan brings upon their life. And men are quick to blame God when anything goes wrong. But not many blame Satan. And yet Satan is the instigator for many of man's problems. Satan is not in the habit of bringing cheer and goodwill to people's lives. The third thing that Job mentions here that causes uh, uh, some of his difficulties was his wife. In verse 7, notice in verse 7, at the end it says, You have made desolate all my company. All my company, he's referring to his family. Job is talking about his family here in verse 7. His children had been killed. He had lost his wife's support. She was the last one to leave Job's company. And a wife is the most important part of a man. Now, many don't think so, but the Bible teaches that to be the truth. Genesis 2.18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. You know, she's his companion, his, his closest friend. And earlier on, she had told Job to curse God and die, which was the final blow uh, to Job in losing, again, the presence, he says there at the end of verse 7, of my company, speaking of family. Because, again, she was going through as much difficulty as Job was, except for the health issues. And, you know, she, she had lost quite a bit as well. And she had come to the point, you know, where she had, you know, I, I'm sure in haste, had told Job to curse God and die. All of this added so much to Job's sorrow and misery. 
because Job was a family man. He loved his family. He loved the fellowship with his family, rejoiced with his family like most of us do. And having his life's companion stop supporting him, man, that was a real thing, hard thing for him to handle. It was a real blow to him, and it added a lot of sorrow to Job's grief. The fourth thing that causes Job so much difficulty was his health, his physical condition. Look at verse 8. He says, You, God, have shriveled me up, and it is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. Job's physical condition. Notice he says, You, God, the you is speaking of God. You shriveled me up. You know, it, it describes his, his physical condition here. And my health and my body and all that's going, it's a witness against me. In other words, it's not a good witness, God. You know, because I'm all, I'm sickly and I'm all shriveled up. Job isn't accepting this condemnation by his friends, but he complains to God that the trouble that he has heaped upon him, it seems to give witness or it seems to prove the fact of Job's sinfulness. Now, it's not saying that, that because he's sick, or it, it is because of sin. But in Job's eyes, he's saying that, you know, it, it, it appears to prove, God, that there's something I've done wrong in my life because, you know, this is not a good witness, my physical condition. Job's heart is filled with sorrow because of this situation. Then the fifth thing he says that causes him problems, uh, troubles is wrath. Look at verse 9. He, speaking of God, he tears me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. The picture that Job is giving here is of a vicious and wild animal tearing apart his prey. Because this is what Job feels like God is doing to him. He feels like God's wrath is bringing a lot of sorrow on Job according to Job's view of his situation. And Job is right in recognizing a vicious adversary, but he's wrong in thinking that God is his adversary. You see, God only allowed these things to come into Job's life, but Satan is the one who brought them. And once again, Satan loves to have men blame God for his dirty work. This helps Satan to dishonor God. And Job goes to the extreme by thinking that his troubles mean that God hates him. And how many times does Satan put into our mind and our thoughts, oh, God must be mad at you. God's angry at you because you've messed up. You know, you did something wrong. Now, what Job says, obviously, is not true. But the pain and the sorrow of Job that he's feeling, it forces him to say this. It's the pain that's talking. Thinking God hates you will cause any godly person to have a lot of sorrow. The sixth thing that Job says causes his troubles, look at verse 9. Again, he tears me in his wrath and he hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. Another source for his sorrow was the supposed constant watching, notice, by my adversary. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. In other words, Job feels like he's being watched all of the time. And it's in the sense of somebody waiting until he can attack Job successfully. He feels he's being watched like an animal watches his victim when he's about to jump on it. 
And I got to laugh when I'm telling you this. Because as I was sitting there, I saw this little bug moving across the sidewalk. And I was just watching this little, it was a cricket. The next thing I knew, from the darkness under these bushes, a lizard shot out there and gulped it down and ran back into the bushes. That's exactly what Job is feeling here. That lizard had been watching that little cricket until it got to a place where that, cricket, that lizard could come out, snatch him up, and run back into the bushes and, and do away with him. Job says, hey, I feel like I'm being watched all the time. He says, in the sense that somebody is just waiting to attack me successfully. He feels he's being watched like an animal watches his victim when he's about to jump on it. Job's friends are attentive. They're watchful. And every word and injury and work of Job is with the intention that they can find something to condemn him about. That is to add more wounds to Job by condemning him. The seventh thing that Job feels causes him so much trouble is, is wicked. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says, They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the tree- cheek. They gather together against me. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. It's the wicked that bother him that cause him so much trouble. He says, People jeer at me. They laugh at me. They snicker at me. They slap my cheek in contempt. He says, a mob gathers against me. God has handed me over to sinners. He's tossed me into the hands of the wicked. So Job feels betrayed by God. He feels like he's been turned over to the hand of the wicked to be mistreated by them, which multiplies his sorrows. Now, this is a picture of Jesus before his accusers. That's exactly what happened to our Lord. Their manners are against Job. He says, they gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. He says, there there are multitudes against me. He says, they gather together against me. The eighth thing that causes Job problems is the defeat he feels. Look at verse 12. He says, I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He also has taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. Job says, you know, I was at ease. I was living quietly and comfortable until he shattered my life. And Job goes back again, pointing to God as being the one that's the cause of all of his troubles here. He says, man, God gave me a thrashing by breaking me and shaking me to pieces. Job's troubles would seem like somebody had really punched him hard and sent him stumbling to the ground, broken in pieces. The ninth thing that Job says causes him so much difficulty are the wounds that he experiences. Verses 12 and 13. Again, we'll read 12 and 13. I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He also has taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He, he says that, that God took me by the neck and it just broke me in pieces. And then he said, God, Job says, what he does next, he makes me his target. And now all of his archers surround me. And his arrows, they pierce me without mercy. And the ground is covered, wet with my blood. 
In another figure, Job sees himself as having been set up like a target for divine archers who have surrounded him and greatly wounded him. So Job's physical condition would justify this figure here. Because Job was just a mass of wounds and sores that would cause Job a lot of sorrow. And then lastly, combat, verse 14. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior, like he's in a combat with God. He says again and again, God smashes against me and God charges at me like a warrior. And this figure pictures Job's sorrows as being caused by God. He says he's, made, he's comparing it to be a, a, like a great fighting army that would attack a city and then break down a wall of that city. And that he was, he was doing that city after city. Job's troubles are many and they're heavy. And he says in verse 6, my grief is not relieved. His troubles have caused him a lot of sorrow. In the middle of his complaints, Job stops and he asks God for help. Eliphaz accused Job of being someone that restrains prayer before God in in chapter 15, verse 4. In other words, Eliphaz accused Job of not having fear for God or having reverence for God. But it was a totally false accusation. We don't find his friends praying praying to God for Job. All they've been doing is accusing Job and condemning Job. They accuse Job of restraining prayer, of not praying, of being hypocritical, which was hypocritical on the part of his friends because the three friends were the ones who didn't pray for him. Now, verses 15 through 22. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and laid my head in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping and on my eyelids is a shadow of death. Although no violence is in my hands and my prayer is pure. O earth, do not cover my blood and let my cry have no resting place. Surely even now my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high. My friends scorn me, my eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. Job says here, you know, I have, sh- I have dark shadows around my eyes. And yet I've done, I haven't done anything wrong. My prayer is, is pure. He says, oh, earth, don't, don't hide my blood. Let my blood cry out from the ground. Let it cry out on my behalf. And even now, he says, my witness is in heaven. He says, my advocate is, is on high there. He says, my friends ridicule me. But he says, I pour out my tears to God. He says, I need somebody to meditate, um, uh, to mediate between God and me. Like a person who mediates between friends. He says, because soon I'm going to go down that road from which I will never return. He says, pretty soon I'm going to die. Now, how had Job responded to God's attacks? It says here in 15 through 22, he put on sackcloth. He wept in humiliation and he buried his face in the dust. In spite of all of Eliphaz's accusations. In chapter 15, 4 through 6, Job knew that he was right before God and that God would hear his prayers. 
Job was basically caught between a rock and a hard place, as they say. His suffering was so terrible that he really wanted to die. But he didn't want to die until he could clear himself or God would clear him. This explains what he said in verse 18 when he said, O earth, do not cover my blood and let my cry have no resting place. Now, during this time, the ancients believed that the blood of innocent victims cried out to God for justice. Just like with Cain and Abel, Abel's blood cried out to to God when Cain killed him. And they believed that the spirits of the dead were restless until the bodies were properly buried. So even if Job died, he would be restless until he had proven to the Lord that he was righteous. Job's repeated cry has been, and he said it many times, he says he wants a fair trial before the Lord. And he has grieved over the fact that he had nobody, he didn't have an advocate to represent him at God's throne. None of his friends would defend him. So his only hope was God in heaven that God would defend him and that God would bear witness to his integrity. But Job wanted somebody to plead with God on his behalf. So in closing, we the believer have an advocate in Jesus Christ. He's our interceding high priest. And Jesus gives us the conquering grace that we need when we're tempted and when we're tested. And if we fail, if we blow it, then he's our advocate to forgive us. And he will restore us when we confess our sins to him. Now, Job naturally wanted a lawyer to plead his case before God and to convince God that he was innocent. And once Job had won his case, then God would vindicate him. God would justify him before his critical friends and restore Job's honor. That's what, God, that's what Job wanted so badly. God's people, though, don't need that kind of intercession because the, the Father and the Son are in perfect agreement in their love for us and in their plan for our lives. Our Lord Jesus always lives to make intercession for you and me and to perfect them in the will of God. We come to a throne of grace, Hebrews tells us. A throne of grace, and we can come boldly. We don't, we don't come before a throne of judgment. He's not waiting there to, to, to hit us with a big stick for messing up. It's not a throne of judgment. And we have confidence that our loving Father will always do what's best for us. Father, we thank you so much for the book of Job. And Father, may you continue to teach us, God, how to be a comforter, Lord. Teach us what to say as well as what not to say, God. Teach us when to say it as well as not when to say it, God. Lord, help us to be moved by the Spirit. Help us to seek the wisdom from above, God. Help us to be all that you've called us to be, Father. Lord, help us to be the comforters that that Paul describes, Lord. That you comfort us 
not to, to make us comfortable, but that we can comfort others, God, in their time of need. So, Lord, may you comfort those as only you can comfort them. And, Father, may we seek the wisdom and the compassion and the mercy and the grace to comfort others, Lord, as you would comfort them, Lord. We thank you for your love and your grace, God. We thank you for all that you do for us, all that you're doing for us, and all that you're going to do, God. Bless your people as they, as they fellowship or go home or whatever they might do, God. Have your hand upon them, Lord. And we look forward to meeting together again this Sunday, God. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sunday morning, we're going to.